I really enjoyed setting up this project and running it and having a team of people that I had a certain level of responsibility for again. It, it's a natural, comfortable place for me to be. Hello, I'm Paul Gisby. Even though she left the British Army nearly 22 years ago, Lisa Smith is still a big fan of the way the Army teaches and develops leadership. To this day, she finds that she draws upon the skills she first picked up at Sandhurst and then honed over her nine years as a serving officer. One lesson she learned early on was that while rank is important and definitely confers status, respect for the individual holding a given rank does not come automatically with pips on the shoulder. It has to be earned. I was actually made lieutenant earlier than the year point because the unit I went to was a training unit and they didn't have any other uh, second lieutenants. And so the commanding officer just said, I'm just going to make you a lieutenant now because then all the young officers living in the officers mess are the same rank and nobody's going to differentiate you. I don't know if that was because I was female. I was the only female officer there because I was the only person from my court. I don't, I don't really know, but I, was, I do remember feeling very happy about that, almost like, oh, well, I've got a little bonus, because you get an increment in pay uh, with every rank. So, it, I mean, it wasn't a big thing, really, but I, it, it pleased me. Why did it please you, do you think? Well, I think I'd, I was posted to Flowerdown Barracks in Winchester, and at that time, it was the training depot for the light division. All the officers in the light division, certainly in the green jackets, green jackets and light infantry, mostly came from Eton, Harrow, Winchester and rugby schools. And most of those officers had fathers, grandfathers who were brigadiers, generals and so on. I had been to a comprehensive school and I, I went in there and found it quite a challenge to live amongst these guys actually um, and I think they found me a little bit different to the sort of gals they were used to as well and I do think it helped me hold my ground in that environment they were all lieutenants and captains so I do remember thinking well I'm kind of at least I'm wearing the same number of pips on my shoulders it kind of shows my worth Mm. So your rank and the outward expression of that, as you say, it's, it's there for everyone to see every day. It's on your uniform. That's, that's a really important factor in how people look at you and think about you. It is. It is. And, and what's, what's interesting, though, and what's quite funny about it, so you could have a warrant officer class one who has been in the army 20 years, soldier who's done very well, flown through the ranks, and he could be the regimental sergeant major of the unit. And he calls, you know, he would call me ma'am and would salute me. And the challenge that comes up is often what those people will do is not salute you and see if you question it. And you're taught this kind of theory that they're not actually saluting you as a person. They might think you're, you're absolutely useless, but it's the, 
the rank you are wearing that you've been awarded that they are supposed to be saluting. But it's quite a thing to, you know, when you're a 22 year old second lieutenant in camp with an RSM who is God to most people, and you have to say, you know, excuse me, RSM, is there any reason why he didn't salute me? But that is interesting, actually, because I think a lot of people who haven't experienced the armed forces would assume that the signature is enough. I know I'm a, I'm a more senior rank than you, so you have to respect me in the obvious way of saluting and, and in, in other ways. But I think what you're saying is the insignia sets, sort of sets the scene, but you still have to then go and earn the respect. Yes, you do. You really do. And it's it's you know, most second lieutenants, when they leave Santos and they go to a unit, their role is as a platoon commander and they're given a platoon of soldiers to command, about 24 people. They will also be given a platoon sergeant and a few corporals who will command each section. So the platoon's broken into three and each group of eight, if you like, has a section commander. Now, the sergeant is probably someone in their 30s who's also done pretty well. And as a second lieutenant, you basically do what the sergeant tells you to do. Well, you do what he tells you or she or she tells you to do if you're stuck. You don't just go blindly into it, making it up. And, you know, I'm I'm the the all knowing. I mean, there's an, an awful lot expected of you and you're, you are expected to lead that whole team. But you're not expected to know everything. And you are expected to use that expertise to your best to, well, to the best advantage of the team. I'm guessing that, that, that you know, you, I don't know, maybe this is, this is a piece of advice you would get is make an ally of your sergeant. Yeah, 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 because they're going to support you. I mean, I, I had one incident in, um, in, in this same unit, my first unit. So as, um, as an officer, you take in turns to be the daily duty officer, the orderly officer, and there's certain jobs that come with it uh, on, uh, for that day. But you are also, because you live in, you are the person that if there is any sort of incident, you take control of the whole incident. Now, this was early 90s. The IRA was still active and we, we, we trained for that. And I was duty officer one evening, had a phone call from the guard room. And there's a word the army use, which is called no duff, which means this, this isn't a joke. We're not bullshitting you. This is a real thing. And the phone rang and I answered it and the the sergeant in the in the guard room said, ma'am, no duff, a device has been found on the parade square. So that means major incident, call in, bomb disposal. Um, and one of the first things you're taught is you lock the gate. Nobody goes in, nobody goes out, apart from letting bomb disposal in. And there is a there's an order of instructions to follow. And I'd read the orderly, orderly officer file, but you know, I was I was 22. And I, I remember cycling down to the guard room thinking, you know, and this is make or break. This is ruin my career or everyone's going to go. She, she handled it really well. And I got down there and there was this guy who was absolutely brilliant. He was called Corporal Pashby, who had just got back from a two year tour of Northern Ireland. And he said to me, ma'am, just do what I tell you. And I said, OK. And he literally just whispered all the instructions in my ears. So the first one is cordon off the parade square. So, you know, so I'm to all intents and purposes, I'm saying, right, cordon off the parade square. And Corporal Pashby is saying, right get the, the duty guard to the, the and I just I just did what he said and and the, the the sort of funny part of the story was the the regimental sergeant major arrived and he wanted to come in and take over from me and this guy was saying you can't do that it's not allowed you can't let anyone in and you can't let anyone out so I didn't let the RSA in which I you know I got told off for 
but actually it was the right thing. And so that's kind of how it works if you allow it to. And it was really funny because I was getting loads of phone calls from the other officers in the mess, the, the infantry officers, some of them were captains who'd also done tours of Northern Ireland going, Lisa, why don't you just get your, you know, get your pretty little head down and let me take over, you know? And of course, all the guys in the guardroom going, because they knew I would actually follow their lead, their instruction, I would run it as per their, whereas they, I think they were worried that the others would come down and go, right, I'm taking over here and come up with some other, I don't, I don't know. And so you have to finish the story of what, what, what happened. Actually, it was a hoax. It was a hoax. Somebody had got in, it probably was somebody within within the camp itself, someone with a grudge, and it was, you know, it was a sandwich box with wires coming out of it, basically. But the sort of thing that could be a device, but it turned out to be nothing. And it was kind of hidden enough to to really believe it's it was a, a proper device. Yeah, and then the bomb disposal came, and you know the whole battle, the whole thing sort of had to happen. Wow, and it, that's a great story. Thank you for sharing that. But that's very interesting because you're painting the picture of there, and we've already touched on it a bit. You get given a rank, but you don't get given the respect. Definitely, you still got to go and win the respect. So I'm assuming that you know a whole cadre of of, of lieutenants, some will be better regarded by uh, you know their their seniors and and the, and the people that they command. Of course, better than others. always. I mean, I do believe Santest is still probably one of the best leadership schools in the world. I, I do think it's a, a very very brilliant organization and system and I, I still stand by quite a lot of what I learned there and you know it's it's not about being popular it never is about that particularly with soldiers you might be commanding it's about doing the right thing you know moral courage and integrity they are taught specifically at Santa's mm. so you get promoted to lieutenant, that's just pretty much automatic. But thereafter, as we're saying, you have to sort of win the respect of, of others and, mm. and build up this reputation of, of being good at your, your job. Does that then start to influence more what happens in terms of promotion thereafter? What, what happens from then, once you've been the second lieutenant for three years, you do um, something called JOTS1, Junior Officer Training Exam Scheme. Now, what happened was everybody who had left Santos at the same time as me, who'd been a graduate, so they're at the same, we all did our exams together that year. And we, we, you all then get promoted to captain on the same day. But there are more hurdles to, to jump before you get that. It isn't an automatic one. As an educator, I knew I'd get more responsibility as a captain. And in fact, I was, I was really lucky. I had two jobs running my own education centre, which is really a major's role. But because they were sort of satellite centres of other things, I, and that, so that does feel good. So you go, wow, there's a captain at 25. I'm running an education centre in Hong Kong. That, that does feel like I'm achieving things that people think I'm doing a good job. Right. Okay. So doing a good job was important. At what point did you really begin to notice that doing a good job was a key part of getting the next promotion? I think when I got my posting to Hong Kong, I, I got a posting to Hong Kong to the training depot brigade of Gurkhas. I went there as the depot education officer with a huge team. I screwed up a few times. I did some stuff that was terrible, probably because I was 25 and had a team of 10 Gurkha staff and a team of about 10 civilian staff to manage and a budget. I had to run the education 
selection exams in Nepal for when you know the boys would go through their selection process to join the Gurkhas. I mean, there was it was a big job. In all honesty, with with the benefit of hindsight, probably really wasn't up for it completely. But what the army does is make you believe you can do anything. So you always go, yeah, I can do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Education centre in Hong Kong. Yeah, I'll go and do that. Oh, great. And then you, it does make you feel quite proud that I've done well enough to be given this education centre and, um, and run it, even if I didn't do it that well. <laughs> Give us an example that you feel able to share about what screwing up then. I didn't manage the Gurkha part of the education centre particularly well I don't think at the time I mean who you know it's a long time ago part of it I think was I was in I shared an office with a Gurkha captain so although we were kind of same rank Queen's Gurkha officers have a slightly or had it's not the same system now it was it was like another tier it was like another ladder almost again really mutually respectful and I think I kind of left that side of things to him and I probably should have taken more of the responsibility myself. And I think it was only on somebody literally sort of telling, saying to me, I think it was a Gurkha sergeant saying to me one day, you know, I don't think you're doing your job. I don't think you're doing it well enough. I don't see enough of you that I was kind of like, oh my, you know, oh my God, this is terrible. But of course, those things are always really helpful, aren't they, when you go forward? Because when you have someone coming into your office and tell, telling you that, you, you don't forget that. You go, okay, I've, I've got to address this. So I think it was that. I think it was lack of experience. I didn't really have very much other support around me. So I didn't have like a sergeant, like I'd explained that you might have in, in other organisations in that way. But, you know, I, I got through it and I learned from it. What do you think you learned from that whole experience? I, I think really that the key, which I should have known anyway, and I still realise now is communication, good communication, just... I had a posting in Germany and we had this brigadier there called Monty, Brigadier Montgomery. He was he was absolutely gorgeous and he drove a Harley Davidson. He was like really cool. And he he his thing was you manage by walking around. That's how you manage people. It's the only way to do it. And he would a couple of nights a week put his jeans on and go into the sergeant's mess or the or the naffy. He'd buy the boys a couple of pints, sit down and go, right, tell me how it is. Yeah, I want to really know how, how life is for you. That's what I think I learned from that, that you've just you've got to just be with people and get to know them and communicate with them, whoever they are, whatever the organisation, whatever the system, that's that's the way to to make things work best. Mm. I mean, you say you should have known it, but isn't that what experience is? It's one thing to read it from the book. It's another thing to actually see what it looks like in real life and and, and properly learn the lesson. I was it was quite a lot I did it, it was and of course you remember the stuff that went wrong there's plenty of things I did right and I did well and in fact one of the things I did really well from the managing the civilian team these civilian English language teachers and the very experienced guy who'd worked for the British Council all over the world I remember when I left he wrote me this card saying you know you've shown qualities that your seniors would do well to follow you know so it wasn't all bad and then I got a really, really plump posting from there, really jammy, plump, you know, the sort of posting where my, my friends and colleagues were going, oh, bloody hell, did you get that? You know, but I, I was very young to join the education corps. A lot of people joined having done a degree, done a PGCE, done some teaching, 
maybe even a bit of traveling as well. A lot of them were like 24, 25 when they joined. And most people look at promotion to major at about 30, 32. So they've got to get key jobs in, like working in an army education center, various other things before they got promoted to major. I'd got a decade. I'd got 10 years to fill. Um, and so when they were sort of offering me the run of the mill, obvious postings, I, you know, I was sort of saying, well, you know, I'm going to have years of this. Can I not do something a bit more exciting? Can I go to Hong Kong to the Gurkhas? Can I go and do this potential officer development course? I think I was always a little bit necky, which is a military phrase, sticking your neck out, just always going, well, I could do that. Well, can I go? Well, what about me? I, I'd be good at that. I think I pushed for it. Right. So what was the, the, the plum job you got? The plum job was, it's probably the, one of the best jobs I've ever done, actually. It was called Potential Officer Development Course. It's run by the Education Training Services branch, and it's for soldiers who join at perhaps 16, 17, 18, who have real leadership potential, but for whatever reason, they've joined young. And through the first three or four years of their career, they've been picked up as having this real leadership potential. And so they get then sent on this 14-week training course to prepare them for the, the regular commissions board interview. They, they kind of have this 14 weeks. It's almost like going from soldier to officer course. And it prepares them for the selection process. And then they go to Sandhurst and become officers on that, on that ladder. It's a really brilliant leadership course because you get the, the best young soldiers coming in who are very keen. And you basically run a 14-week leadership course, but, the, you know, we would go to things like shape headquarters. We would take them to the opera. We just would give them experiences of things they hadn't done. But a lot of it was they had to decide and organise it themselves to show their own leadership qualities. So we'd say, you know, OK, we're going to do something cultural. You come up with what you want to do. Here's the budget. You organise it. You run it. You take us there. And then there'd be other activities around it. So, I mean, it was a really fun, really, really fun job. Talk us through a bit more then. So you, you get to captain and then... Uh, from captain, you, you look at promotion to major. And for that, you have you go on a three-month course. I, I don't know if you still do, but you did then, called JCSC, Joint Command of Staff College. And so you were all sent on this course for three months that was uh, quite academic, mostly academic, and all about sort of strategy and defence strategy and so on. And then you did quite... Um, a rigorous exam at the end of that and then you you would go be put forward for selection for promotion to major you wouldn't necessarily get it it again would really then your annual confidential reports and your previous profile is all taken into account you know I had friends who got there very quickly I had some friends who it took a little bit of time some people failed the exams but they're it's, it's open to everybody, I think is the important thing. And everybody expects to get it. And really, in my experience, everybody wants to get it. You're just assuming that's what you're going to do. I didn't do it because I, I left. So I left when I was 30. And in fact, before I had my daughter, my, my first child, I, in fact, the day I found out I was pregnant, I'd gone to the medical centre and found out. And as I walked back into the education centre, my boss was there saying, right, we've got your dates through for your JCSE course. And I would just found out I was pregnant, so I wasn't going to be able to do it. Right. You couldn't do it? It wasn't allowed? The dates would have taken me up to my due date. I think it was starting, it was sort of October, November, December, and I was going to be having her on the, her birthday's 10th January. Okay. So what did you decide to do? So at that point, I thought, okay, well, I'll have 
I wasn't expecting to get pregnant. We weren't, you know, it wasn't, she was a lovely surprise. And it all sort of came out of the blue. And I think, right, what am I going to do about my career? So at this point, my husband was thinking of leaving the army. So I, and I wasn't, so I think, so it's fine. I was thinking he can leave, that's fine. I'll stay, which keeps us a married quarter and a, a good salary and whatever. And then I'll do the, have my baby, which will be a breeze. And then I'll just have three months of maternity leave and I'll go back to work. And then I'll do JCSC with the baby, you know, because you, until you've got one, you don't know. It didn't quite, you know, I had her and I, 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 I lost interest really. I, I lost interest in my job, actually. I really lost interest in in the system, in the expectation of because of course the expectation was the same. It sh it should be the same, but I I knew I couldn't offer what I'd previously offered. Now I'd become a mum. That's not disillusionment, though. You're talking about. I was. It wasn't disillusionment. It was just I I I'd had no idea that that's how I would feel. And my husband had left the army by then, and you know, long term, I was beginning to think. How's this going to work? You know, what if I get another posting to Germany and he's in, he was in a really good job in London by the time she was born or just after she was born, he started the job. Um, how, how's that going to work? What, what are we going to do is, you know, am I going to leave her with him? Am I going to have her with me? And then, you know, how's, what would we, would we consider not being together? Um, and I, I very quickly thought, no, no, actually, no, I wouldn't. I wanted to keep my family together and, I really took my foot off the gas then. And you left? Uh, well, I actually left. I decided I was going to, I because so long ago when I joined, you could still leave. You could still leave on marriage. When I joined, you could still leave on marriage and you had to leave on pregnancy. And then that changed that you still could leave on pregnancy. It was kind of a slightly better deal financially as well. So I thought when my daughter was one, um, I thought, right, I'm going to have another baby and then I'll leave on pregnancy. Uh, but I had a miscarriage and um, and it was quite late on and it was all just a bit of a mess really and I just thought I've got, I've got to get out I just got to get out it wasn't it wasn't giving me what I wanted or needed anymore so I I, I did just leave okay sorry to hear about the miscarriage that must have been tough yeah it was it was and um, in I was living on camp working on camp I think probably it was one of my most difficult times in the army I had a female boss actually he was really unsympathetic not that you would say that you know one should be more or less sympathetic than the other but there was why aren't you back at work <laughs> you know sort of two days later because <laughs> I don't feel very well you know mm, not great okay let's fast forward the conversation a bit from here to where you've left the army okay and by now you have two children and the whole family has relocated to South Wales yeah in South Wales, you worked for 12 years as a lecturer in a further education college, which had its ups and downs, but which, due to cutbacks, ultimately ended up with you being made redundant. Yeah. However, at this point, you developed a strong interest in the field of well-being, and in particular yoga. And so you decided to set up a well-being centre in St David's, where you live, in a disused British Red Cross training hall. So my question to you is, um, when you moved on to this new venture, did that feel like a promotion? Personally, yes, getting the wellbeing centre. You know, I, I know I'm quite a good project manager and, you know, that was a really good example of project management from thinking, hmm, how, what am I going to do? How am I going to do this? 
to pulling together a team of 10, we started with an opening, having this grand opening of the wellbeing centre and it taking off, definitely. Because it really was another, another skill that I hadn't really ever had a chance to do before, to, to start up something from scratch into a tangible thing that worked. And I wanted to step back up into a proper leadership role. And I was very excited about it. And it, it made me come alive, I think. I really enjoyed it. And I even enjoyed the mundane things like spending hours with the website designers and um, the stuff that's not really my, you know, I'm not particularly techie, but even the, the bits and pieces that had to be done and setting up a business bank account and all those quite onerous tasks that take a lot of time. I, I've, every bit of it thrilled me because it was part of what I was putting together. That's a very interesting. So you were back there in a leadership position. You would have had status as the leader because you were you were in charge and the book was stopping with you for various things. But tell me, did it feel the same or different to being a captain in the army? Very different. Very different because because they're not soldiers and they're not people whose jobs I've got a an influence over. There were people who I was asking to come and be a part of something. Um, and hmm, having said that, I still had to, you know, I, I, I think in the, we, we get given, you get given this book when you leave Santa's called Serve to Lead, which is the, the motto, the academy motto, and it's on the cat badge. In there, there's a quote, which is that leadership is the art of getting somebody to do what they might not want to do willingly and I did feel to a point when I set the centre up that not that people weren't willing everybody was really willing and, and, and wanting to but there, there was more that I wanted of them uh, I wanted people to not just come in once a fortnight for an afternoon I wanted people have coming in twice a week for four hours and getting lots of clients and and making their own individual sort of businesses within the wellbeing centre work and so I felt that therefore they were the skills that I'd needed to encourage the individual practitioners to do that. And did it feel like having pips on your shoulders again or did it feel um, different? I liked, I like it being mine. And that's, you know, I can't deny that. I quite like the idea that although I, I always talk about us and we and we all run the, the wellbeing centre, I do think I, I liked the, the sort of autonomy of ownership and i really enjoyed setting up this project and running it and having a team of people that i had a certain level of responsibility for again it, it's a mm. natural comfortable place for me to be and now you're also doing some corporate work i think aren't you so tell us a bit about that uh well the work i'm now being invited to do with red 10 which is offering well-being masterclasses and coaching in the corporate world going going out to big businesses is very exciting for me because it's a, a world i've never been in it's very well rewarded and it feels to me that it's kind of pulling together all the skills i've accrued over my career my 30-year career 
all those skills are just being pulled together and I'm given an opportunity to step up into something new and exciting with all sorts of other benefits. And, and I'm really, really enjoying that as an opportunity. And it feels like a promotion. It does feel like a promotion because, you know, when I first did the first workshop I did for Red 10, I, I don't know how I got there. I don't know how I actually walked into the room and, and delivered what I had to deliver because it felt so, so new and so different. And I wasn't convinced I was up to it. I kept thinking any moment someone's going to go, you know, who called you in? Imposter, Imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome, completely. And, and actually that day was one of the toughest days of my life. Certainly, prob- probably akin to that day I arrived at Santa's thinking, you know, my ironing board in the back of the car thinking, I'm, I'm going to get found out. They're going to go, hang on, there's been a mistake. And whilst those feelings don't feel very positive at the time, I think that's being alive. That's, you know, that is living life. And I was very grateful to be given that opportunity, actually, and to, and to be able to keep stepping up, maybe. Any advice for people who are looking to get promoted? I think you should seriously think about what your motivators are for that promotion and make sure it isn't what other people expect you to do. I've worked in organisations, but both actually both in the army and when I was in further education, and I've looked at jobs above me and thought, I really wouldn't want that job, actually. I don't, it's not a job I'm interested in. I don't like what that job involves. Now, it might be that for some people you have to do that to get to the next one, which you would love and be good at. But I think, I think make sure it's really, really what you want. And if it isn't, don't just go through the motions of it because you want the money. Don't do it for money. Do it because you love it. A big thank you to Lisa for sharing her very personal story. I hope that you've enjoyed and perhaps found value in listening to the interviews in this season. If you have, then do look out for the final two episodes where I will be providing my summary of what I learned from the stories I heard, and in the final episode, bringing together in one place all the tips and advice offered to others seeking promotion. I'm Paul Gisby of Talking Leaders. We help leaders who want to get heard, be understood, and to build trust. Goodbye. Goodbye.